Take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Last week we talked about Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus' instruction on giving. If you weren't here, that, that message is available and the elders of the church, uh, I think uh, Monday morning, asked that we send out an email asking you as a congregation to listen to that sermon. If you missed that sermon live and in person, it's there. Matthew 6 is a very difficult passage, and uh, I've had a lot of conversations, as you can imagine. Thankfully, positive conversations. Our home groups are very positive in, in uh, going through the sermon, digesting it, trying to apply it into our lives, and how does it all fit with us. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not a discouraging passage. It may be discouraging because we're not as gracious in our giving, but it's intended to be very encouraging by its very design. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to give. To give. He's encouraging. He's, he's uh, not upbraiding them. He's not fussing. He's not on a, on a tangent and a tirade against them. He's lovingly like a father saying, hey, fulfill what you promised. Fulfill what you said you would do. And so we're going to read the text in just a moment. And then we're going to hopefully understand it a little better. And we're not going to go through... Both chapters verse by verse. Aren't you glad of that? Um, especially since it's already after 11. No, we're going to pull out five very practical, very applicable, hopefully, points to all of our lives from several verses in there. And, and hopefully you will be encouraged by this message also. Let's read the text together. And we'll read it uh, in its entirety. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the pleasure or the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, I just want to stop there and say, can you imagine this? A church is begging a preacher if they can give more. They're saying, oh, no, no, no. We're not giving enough, Paul. Can't pass the plate one more time. Pass it one more time. We got more. People are going to dig in a little deeper now. They're going to get all the way down to the lint in their robe. Can you imagine that kind of giving? And that's what he says about the church at Macedonia. It's poor but it's a overflowing in wealth. That's an amazing truth. And, uh, and we're going to see it a little more. And I also want to say the point of this text, that we can historically place this text in a time of famine. The whole Middle Eastern world at this time was under a great famine, a repressing famine, economic depression. Nobody in this region had too much. Everybody had the justification, especially the Macedonians, to say, you know what, we just don't have any extra to give this year to missions. I know the brothers in Jerusalem are in need. So are we. We're keeping our money at home this year. Maybe next year. Okay? The Gentile churches look to Jerusalem and say, that's our mother. We have the faith we have because they faithfully sent out the most talented of their teachers to us to bring us the gospel. In their time of need, we're giving. They're hurting. We don't want them to hurt. We're going to give. Okay? But think about that. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 that tells us that's the historical setting. Paul was commissioned by the brothers in Jerusalem to go to the Gentile churches and collect a giving. Paul won't receive one dime from the money that he's asking for. He's not going to get any of it. It's all going to those in need in Jerusalem. Okay? So that's kind of the setting. Verse 5. And this not... And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, talking to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The grace of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you love also, your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness is desiring, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching and of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at, the, at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Paul checked out the people that would take this gift. He made sure they were trustworthy. He made sure they were honorable. He made sure they weren't swindlers, thieves, questionable in character. All Titus and these other two brothers are trustworthy, he's saying. So, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. A little pastoral pressure. Don't embarrass yourself. You said you would do it. Now I'm sending the brothers early so you'll do it. And be on time with it. Don't be late. Verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brother to just go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he, is, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies need seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. So this is our text, five practical applications for your life. One, we base our giving, we base our giving on the grace of God. We base our giving on the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, which we know is a gift from God, in speech, which we know is a gift from God, in knowledge, which we know is a gift from God, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, all these are gifts, all of these are symbols of the grace of God in the life of the people of Corinth. See that you excel in this act of grace also. We give based on God's giving to us. We give graciously because God has been gracious to us. We see this in John 3.16. In one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. God's grace summed up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We quote it over and over and over again. I want to put a twist on it this morning. Have you ever emphasized, have you ever seen the emphasis on God in that verse? It's almost as if John is shouting to us, God is gracious. God is a giver. God has given you the greatest treasure in heaven or earth. His only Son. The focus of the verse is His Son, not us. The focus of the Son is Himself, not us. And the act of giving, not our act of receiving. For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, this very specific way. He gave His only begotten Son. That's the emphasis of the verse. That's where the uh, accent is. We can also see God's graciousness in Romans chapter 5. If you look there, Romans 5, verses 8 through 9, or you can just listen. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So, God's grace to us comes not generally only, but specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the greatest gift in heaven or earth. God gave it. It can't be duplicated. It can't be replicated. It can't be, it can't, it can't be uh, in any form or fashion compared to anything in this life or the next, this giving of His Son, the greatest gift of all. Our giving is based on the fact that God has been a giving God to us. If your motivation in giving is that God's going to get it, you have a wrong view of God. Right? I mean, how many of us have heard flat tire happens, pull up, man standing there, he's obviously distraught, it's 98 degrees, because they never have a flat tire on 21 going that way when it's 56 degrees outside. Never. Every time I've stopped to help people, and I've stopped many times, it's somewhere in June, July, or August. It's 98 degrees. Sweat is pouring. The brother is staring at a flat tire like he doesn't know what to do about it. He's just looking at it. I went, you need some help? Got a flat tire. Yeah, I saw that from the stoplight back there. That was kind of obvious. He's frozen, you know. He's overwhelmed. Hey, you got a jack? Yeah, I got a jack. Got a spare? Got, yeah. All right, well, let's change the tire. So we go to changing it. And inevitably, when they find out I'm a preacher, you know what they say? This happened three times to me in the last two years. You know what they say? Oh, I cut back on my giving at church. I'm looking around like, what connection did that have with the flat tire? Surely, surely we're not. And I say, you did? I don't know what else to say. I guess I should stick out my hand and say, you can catch up. <laughs> Listen, folks, we don't give because God's going to get us. We give because God is a giver. We base our giving. The foundation of our giving is not that we have this tyrannical Father up there in heaven waiting to zap us with flat tires and out AC units and all kinds of things because we cut back on giving. That's not Him. God has overflowed. God is giving and giving and giving. And so 
inevitably what these people get to with the connection they make is that I, it's a one-to-one correlation. I got a flat tire because I cut back on giving. And I want to say, no, it's that tack from that roofer. They're the world's worst. The roofing tack's everywhere. That's why you got a flat tire. Right? But you see, it's bad theology. It's not understanding texts like we're reading right here. Your giving is based on the grace of God. God has been gracious. That's Paul's first point. God's been gracious not only to give you faith, not only to give you speech, not only to give you knowledge and earnestness, but He's giving you abundantly, we're going to see in this text, financial goods and services so you can give them to others. He's given you your health. He's given you your marriage. He's given you your children so you can give. So you can be a blessing. God has blessed you so that you might be a blessing. It's the same thing He told Abraham, right? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. We see in our very text here, one page over in my Bible, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, He gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you really see that, when I really come to understand that giving of God in the Gospel, financial giving is small beans. It's a, it's a non-issue. We just say, I've received Jesus Christ and I would buck, I would complain, I would give hard uh, words to somebody who would dare to ask me to give. I've received eternal life and an inheritance which cannot be taken away. And I, I might be offended because the pastor or a friend or someone who's poor might ask me to help them? You see how that to Paul, that, 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 there's no connection. He just doesn't even get that. Ephesians 1, chapter we've studied deeply together. The whole chapter, if you just read Ephesians 1, tells of what God has given. He's given us His election. He's given us His adoption. He's given us Forgiveness, He's given us redemption, He's given us an inheritance, He's given us His Son, He's given us His Spirit, and the, and the response to that from God's people is, we can't give. See how, just total disconnect. That's the first principle. We give based on the fact that God has been giver. God has been gracious. Secondly, we base our giving on the sacrifice of Christ. Now these sound redundant, I know they're really close together. But look at verse 9 because Paul makes some distinction here. Look at verse 9. He's talked about the grace of God in verse 1, in verse 7, and how the grace of God is poured into our lives. And he sums up the whole thing in verse 15 of chapter 9 by saying, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift or grace to us. But then in verse 9, he becomes very specific in saying, for you know that the grace, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only God the Father, but our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Philippians 2 is right in the front window here of my mind. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. John chapter 1 says the Word was in the beginning with God. The Word was God. That word was means that they were in such a relationship as to be face to face with one another. They had no degree of separation from the very eons of all eternity past before the creation of the world. There was no Separation. Jesus and God the Father in an embracing, loving, Trinitarian love fest with one another from all of eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Face to face with God. So when it says He was in the form of God, this is what we understand. And He didn't count that as equality, that equality of God a thing to be held on to, grasped tightly to, but He made Himself nothing. The condescension of Christ is a witness to how we should be giving. 
Our giving is based on the grace of God. Our giving is based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I don't give because another man in the congregation gives. And man, he gives a lot. I want to, I want to be like him. That's not my model. I don't give because there's even human examples in the Scriptures where I can look and say, oh my, look at David. When he, had, he was given the plot at Bethel to build the temple on, he said, far be it from me to give to God what didn't cost me anything. And then he gave from the treasury everything he needed to give to buy that piece of land. Those are good examples, but they fall short, don't they? Because anyone can say, well, that's, you know, that, that's good, but I'm almost there. But when we think of the condescension, the coming down of Jesus Christ from that pure, unadulterated, unseparated, undivided relationship with the Father face to face from all eternity, and that He was in the Shekinah glory of God, wrapped up in the throne room of heaven in this Trinitarian love fest with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He gave that up. He stepped down from that high exalted place and put on flesh and came making Himself nothing. Being in the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was poor, born in a nothing village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, living in an even smaller dot on the map, Nazareth, as a child. He was never economically well off. He didn't have a house to call his own. He didn't even have a bed to lay his head down on at night. He said, I laid my head down and the foxes had holes and the birds of the air had nests that I created, but I didn't have anywhere to lay my head. No place to call his own as long as he lived on the earth. No deed to any property. Jesus had none. That's how poor He became. We think about big, rich, wealthy people in our society. We say, man, what a sacrifice it would be for them to step down and live a, like a poor person. To give up their wealth. That's, that, that's hard to even imagine, isn't it? How much greater was His coming down to us? That's what our giving should be based on. It should be a response to the fact that we know God has been gracious in giving us His Son. It should be based on the fact that we know Jesus Christ gave up the Shekinah glory to bring us salvation. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says very clearly in verse 9 of chapter 8, that he became poor, not just for the sake of being poor, but so that he could make us rich. We had a zero, we had worse than a zero, we had a negative 10 account spiritually. We were overdrawn spiritually. And what God did in giving Christ and what Christ did in making Himself poor was not bring us back to zero so we were even with God and then we could earn our righteousness. He took us from negative 10 to positive 10. He took us from zero, worse than nothing. He took us to negatives. He took us from the negatives. To the eternal positive. That's what our giving is based on. Not that God will get it, but that God has given it. Our giving is based on the fact that Jesus was willing to sacrifice. Third, we give to God according to the wealth God has entrusted to us. You say, well, I'm not wealthy, so this part's not about me. But we all are, aren't we? We all are wealthy. I know there's college students in here. I've been a college student. It wasn't that many years ago. So I remember how it's easy to think. I don't have a lot of money. My parents are the ones, only ones giving me money. Or I'm working a job at Dollar General or, or the grocery store or Walmart or wherever and it's part-time. I barely make it. I don't have anything. God doesn't expect anything to be given from me. Be careful, college students. Be careful singles and be careful adults. Be careful little children. The pattern you set right now will be the pattern you most likely follow the rest of your life. Habits are hard to break. If you're used to living at the maximum of your income so, that, so much so that you can't give nothing, you know, a dime, you can't give anything, 
to God's work, don't expect when you get a salary that you'll be able to do it. Satan will keep you in the eternal trap of there's always tomorrow. When I get the next pay raise, then I'll start giving. Start today. If you got $50, find a way. Find a way. Give. I know of students right now who live completely off their parents. They have no money that, that they've earned that are receiving a gift from their parents weekly to live and they are giving regularly every week to their church. Why? Because their father has rightly taught them that if you're not a giver today, you probably won't be one tomorrow. You have to set the pattern of giving. So, giving is according to your own wealth. What God has entrusted to you, and that includes everybody. The people below the poverty line, the people above the poverty line, the college student and the retiring individual, the two-year-old that has uh, just learned to give. And yes, two-year-olds can give. All the way up to the 92-year-old who's been giving all their lives. This text is for everybody. Look at Philippians 8, verse 12 through 15. For if you, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according, notice, it's based on what a person has, not according to what you don't have. Now, what's happened is they've lost money in the last year. They made a promise and then they lost money. And then they said, well, we lost money, so surely God doesn't expect us to give what we said we would give. Paul's saying, Give, and then from that, I take, they're extrapolating out. If I can't give what I said I would give, I'm just not going to give. Paul's saying, no. It's okay to give according to what you have. Not according to what you no longer have. I have less than I've ever had. Paul said, that's okay. That has nothing to do with it. Give what you have. God's not holding you accountable for what you don't have. God has entrusted you with what you have and He is holding you accountable for what you do have, not what you don't have. That's verse 12. Verse 13. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time, even though you've lost Corinth, you're abundant when compared to Macedonia. You have much in comparison to Jerusalem. That's what I see here. Supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be a fairness going on so in this we see finance 101 according to the bible you give according to what you have not according to what you don't have out of the wealth god has entrusted to you he's trusted to you give all right and the poor will give and the rich will give and god will make Himself glorified in all of the giving so that there's fairness. In the early church, there were the haves and the have-nots. Paul said, be careful. Be careful. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Timothy, be careful. Warn them. Those that are blessed in this world, present age, with much, it's a trap. It's a snare. It will get their soul. They'll be working for what they have instead of working for the kingdom. Be careful, it's a snare. Is it evil to have? No, but it's dangerous. That's the attitude of the Bible about wealth. Is it evil to have it? No, God's given it to you. But always understand, He gave it to you to bless others. He gave it to you so that in having, you could supply someone else's need. And whatever they have, they're to give so that they might supply the needs of others. And so that they might even meet the wealthy's need. Fairness is the principle here. We give according to the wealth God has entrusted to us to bring about fairness. Now I want to use Jesus' teaching here quickly. I'm just going to give you some references so you can look them up. Matthew 25, 14-30, you can look it up later. I want to first talk about the parable of the talents. Jesus says in that parable, paraphrasing, to one I entrusted five, to one I entrusted two, to the other one. Alright, now, is he talking about only money? No, he's talking about what you have in life. But money is definitely included. It's no mistake that Jesus uses a financial parable. He could have said, I gave one superabundance in talent in singing, another a mediocre talent in singing, and one very little talent in singing. But he didn't do that. 
He talked about money. Why? Because money is, again, a part of the equation. Not all of it, but it's part of it. And it's the easiest one to quantify. If you're not willing to give money, you're not willing to give yourself. If you're not serving the Lord's kingdom with your finances, forget it. You're not serving anywhere else. Robert Murray McShane said that if you're not giving, you're not Christian. Y'all think I'm bold. If you're not giving, you do not know the gospel. Therefore, you're not Christian. So, when Jesus used this parable, I take it at its face value. I see it's all of life, yes, but it is at base money. So the man trusts them. Five, two, and one. When he returns after his travels, he requires their account. To the five has now become ten. The two, four. One has become one. In terms of our sermon, what we would see here is whatever God entrusted to them, He expected them to invest wisely, be good stewards over. And when He returns, He's going to require that they have done that. The five multiplied double. The two multiplied four. The one, nothing. What's the account of the, of the summing up of accounts? Take the one and give it to the five. Take the one and give it to the man who had five and cast that man who had one out of here. He's an unworthy servant. Why did the man bury the one? Well, because he didn't have very much. He's afraid he would lose it. Jesus said it had been better. If you put it in the bank, at least I'd get interest. But you buried it in mason jars in the backyard. You didn't do anything with it. It's worthless. So he took it from him and he gave it to the one who had five. Why? Because he stewarded that five which he had been given much and more was given to him. Entrusted to him. Now I'm going to bring that back in the last point here of this sermon. There is a point at which there's a reason why some people have much more than others in the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. What about the one that two? He, just, he doubled his also. Welcome you good and faithful servant is what he heard, just like the five. The point is, they each did according to what they were entrusted with. That's what Paul's saying here. You're not being held accountable if you only have one talent. If you only, have, if you only make the bare minimum federal standard or even less in you're in poverty. God doesn't expect you to give like Bill Gates. Don't worry about Bill Gates. Worry about you. He's trusted you with this. Now be faithful with it. What do I mean by be faithful with it? What does Paul mean, I think? What does Jesus mean? Not just with the percentage you give to the church, but with all of it. Some of you, I'm being very practical here for Grace Fellowship, some of you in this last week have come face to face with the fact that you don't have a shortage of money. You've looked at it, you have a shortage of discipline. You can't give here or anywhere else in the kingdom of God because you're not spending the rest of it very well. You're wasting a lot of it. How much of my money will I give to God account for? Everybody wants the percentage, right? 10, 20, 30. Tell me. Just tell me. I'll do whatever you tell me. I'll meet the standard. I would say He wants all 100% of it. 100% of it. You're accountable. I'm accountable. We can't deal in this situation of giving based on our wealth according to our wealth if we're wasting what God has given us. Listen, please hear me. There are widows here and there are divorced women here and there are people who are without jobs here and I'm not being unmerciful at the least. There are seasons of life that are more painful than others. And all I'm trying to say is God expects that you manage and steward what He has entrusted to you well. Which includes your giving. And so Jesus says, some have grained others. One of the positive feedbacks I got last week was a conviction about that very thing. That people have come to realize they're wasting more than ever before. 
And the second conviction is they're saving more than ever before. They cut the giving to God to save because it's tough times. I want to say, saving is always a virtue in the Scripture. Read through the book of Proverbs. Saving is wise. Hoarding is always a vice. Are you hoarding or are you saving? That's the question you have to answer. Luke 12, 13-21, the rich fool parable. Jesus says about this, A man prospered, gained much from his fields, and in his heart he said, Look at what I've done. I will tear down my old barns and build new ones. And Jesus said, Your life, his life was required of him that very night. What you stored up will go to others. You'll never spend it. What's Jesus witnessing against? Savings plans? No. Hoarding. The man had perfectly fine barns, and they were perfectly full. God blessed him with more, and he saw it as something to keep rather than give. And Jesus said, when you die tonight, all those big fancy barns you just built will be worthless to you. Somebody else will eat that. So, when we're talking about giving based on wealth, what are some practical things I would tell the congregation? This. Give to God first. Set your giving first. Second, be faithful to pay your bills. Third, save for the future. Fourth, wisely spend in blessing your family and friends with the rest. How can we bless our families? Some of you need to take your wives to the movies this weekend because you haven't taken her on a date in years. You need to do it. It's fourth on the list. That means you've got to be wise with the first three. If not, you'll never get to four. Here's what I think is happening. We pay our bills. We spend on our family, friends, and ourselves, our hobbies. We never get to saving. We never get to giving. That, my friends, is a disaster for failure. I mean, that is a design for failure. Disaster. Right? In more ways than one. Not that God's going to get it from you, but in the times we live, you don't have anything saved. The wolf standing at the door. He will take it. What little you do have. Practical advice. Flip the pyramid. Flip the grid. Okay? If you want more practical advice, I can give it to you. I won't in the sermon, but please call me. I, I have a list that I've lived by that's been proven over time to be faithful, not to me, but to hundreds of years of saints, the way they've done. I, I would recommend it. You can get to call me, email me. I'd love to talk with you about it. He's counting on us. God is entrusted to us any wealth that we have, and we need to be faithful stewards over every dime of it. If that's the case at Grace Fellowship, we will never miss a budget again. Ever. There'll never be a month again where we don't meet budget. If we do that, we will have excess to give away. Our giving should be in sense of fairness. There are... In this, we just had a deacons meeting this month, I mean, this, this last week on Monday morning, on Monday night, excuse me, and we went through the list of our benevolence. In this church, in case you didn't know, we're practicing fairness. There are people who are on the role of the church. Your giving supports them in their time of need. There's people in this church who are in great need. If we who have leftovers don't give, they will go in greater need. We must be fair in our understanding of what God's entrusted us with. Fourth, we give to God from a heart of joy. Never does God, never does God take, He's a giver. And so we give, not out of obligation, but out of love. Verse 5 in chapter 9. So I, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised 
so that it may be ready as a willing gift. As a gift from your, the depths of your heart. Something you desire to do. Not as something we're requiring or exacting or taxing you. This is not a church tax, in other words. God is asking that you give from a willing spirit. This reflects back to joyful giving. We see it later in the text, in verse 7. Each one must decide what from his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hilarion, the text there, hilarion means to give joyfully. To give from an abundant heart. To give from the overflow of our lives of joy. If you show me someone who's not a giver, I'll show you someone who has no joy. Joyful people are always givers. I think about the widow at the temple. Jesus held her up. He said, do you see her? She gave more than anybody else. I have to envision that. I've read through it so many times. I had to envision things in the Gospels. and it's, it, it really helps me. I imagine her coming in, head high, smile across her face, with one sixty-fourth of a denarii. That's one day's wage for a day laborer. That's all she had. And I imagine her coming down the aisle of the temple, smiling from ear to ear, head held high, placing it in the coffer, turning, not begrudging, not head down, not thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I imagine with the text running through her mind from the old covenant, or the widow, when Elijah asked her for her last bit of meal and oil, make me a loaf, give it to me, the prophet, but my son's here, and he'll starve. You'll never run dry. That's what I think of. I think that the widows there parallel one another a lot for us in the text. And so she's thinking, just like the widow of Zarephath gave to the prophet of God and knew that he would take care of everything she had from that day forward, I'm giving my 164th. I'm giving my... This is something the temple counters wouldn't have even... They might have thrown it on the ground and trampled it underfoot. It was so meaningless. It didn't do anything for the temple. But he did everything for her heart. She left joyful. Jesus said she gave more than anybody. Paul's saying God loves that kind of giving. I love, I love for my people to give to me that way. Because it says they trust me above all things. And when they give recklessly like that, radically like that, it preaches the gospel when nothing else will. Part of the reason the world will not hear our gospel is because it's coated with a thin veneer of worldly riches. They despise it. They hate it. They see it as nothing more than a get-rich-quick scheme. Where are the cheerful givers, I think Paul would say. Where are those who give from a joyful heart? And you say... Okay, so Carlton, that means I don't have to give because I don't have a joyful heart. And until I have a joyful heart, I'm not going to give. No, as John Piper has taught us, in When I Don't Desire God, the sequel to Desiring God, we should do the disciplines whether we feel it or not. And while we're doing it, so you're writing out your check and you're saying, I don't want to give this. I don't have a joyful heart about this. While you're writing that check, repent of your non-joyful spirit. And repent of the fact that you're begrudgingly giving. And say, God, I know what I'm doing is wrong in my heart. What I'm doing in action is right. In my heart, it's wrong. Please forgive my cold deadness to the Gospel. And trust that in giving, He will then supply all the grace you need to overcome the sin and awaken your dead spirit. That's how we should give. Whenever you have a coldness towards the Word of God, do you just stop reading the Bible? Your friend comes out, I just don't get anything out of the Bible. And your solution would be, just don't worry about it. Don't read. Somebody comes and says, oh, brother, I haven't prayed in weeks and I don't really have a heart to pray. Well, just don't pray then. Don't worry about it. Just go on about your business. God doesn't care. God wouldn't want you to pray because you know your heart's not in it. You see how ridiculous that kind of thinking is in any other spiritual discipline? It's that ridiculous in giving. My heart's not in it. I don't really want to. 
then repent of your not wanting to and give. And trust that God will give to you the grace to awaken your cold and callous spirit and make you a joyful giver. I know it's very practical. We would much rather deal with the theological. These kind of messages sting a little. But listen, God's done it to me all week. Y'all get to suffer in unison. I've been suffering all week by myself. Y'all feel sorry for me. The point is this, Grace Fellowship. God has been good to us, has He not? I don't get amens much. But a statement like that requires an amen. God has been good to us, has He not? Yes. God loves cheerful givers. And your giving is based on your understanding of the gospel. How well do you know the gospel today? We give to God from our joyful hearts. Fifth and finally, we give so that the Christians around the world are cared for in their sufferings. Verse 12 of chapter 9. For the ministry of this service is not only supporting the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I think about the fact that this church gives to unreached people in Papua New Guinea, in Mexico. It thrills me when we have Rod Connor come and speak to us and he shares about how they go into a tribe. This happened last time on Wednesday night. If you missed him, man, you missed a blessing. He said, we went into this tribe in Mexico this past year. They had never seen the gospel. They had never heard the gospel. And one lady in the village believed. And we baptized her. That's what your giving is doing. It's multiplying those kinds of stories all over the globe. So our giving is going to those who are suffering. I think about our ministry of giving to Uganda. In Uganda, we have a ministry that has built it, or is in the process of building an orphan village. We have Tyler Harris going there for a month this summer to help in, the, in, the, in that process. Those little orphans are taken off the street and put in a home with Ugandan parents, training them in the Word of God to become a little army of God's soldiers to reach their lost world. That's what your giving is doing, is supporting that kind of ministry. All over the world, in their time of suffering, in their time of need, Grace Fellowship is rising up and supplying what they have need of. God is supplying what they have need of through this fellowship. So I encourage you, unabashedly, without any shame, give and give sacrificially and give abundantly and give joyfully. And when you're not joyful, pray for joy and keep on giving. Never stop. Stop making excuses is the point. Stop making excuses. Be a joyful giver. John Wesley is probably one of the greatest representations of this principle that the church has known. He's quoted in his uh, sermon, which is much harsher than mine, much harsher than any of my sermons on giving have ever been. He's quoted. He says, Having first gained all you can. Never turn down a pay raise. Never think that's godly. Boss comes in and says, I want to give you a great pay raise. No, I've got enough. Take it. That's the first part of the quote. Having done all to gain all you can. And secondly, you've saved all you can. Give all you can. That's the life principle he lived by. Let me just tell you what happened in his life. That was from his sermon, The Use of Money. John Piper, in praising him, says this. In 1731, he was born in 1703. In 1731, he began to limit his expenses. He began to cut back on what it cost him to live personally so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds. So... He found out he could live on 28, and so he gave away 2 pounds. In the second year, his income doubled. Went from 30 to 60 pounds, but his expenses stayed level, so he gave away 32 pounds. A, a whole year's income, a comfortable year's income, he gave it away his second year. In the third year, his income jumped 90 pounds. 
It jumped to 90 pounds and he gave away 62 pounds. In his life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds a year. Remember, a comfortable living was 30 pounds. That means he was uber wealthy in his day. 1,400 pounds a year, but he rarely, rarely, we know of two years, he exceeded 30 pounds living expenses for himself. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at any one time. Just constantly giving away. The English, remember I talked about the IRS last week? The, the IRS of his day, the English tax commissioner? investigated him in 1776 because he said, a man of your means should have more silver. They taxed silver, had an excise tax on silver, so he had to pay it. And his response to them, we still have his response, said, I have two silver spoons at London and I have two silver spoons at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present and I shall not buy any more while so many around me want for bread. Four silver spoons to his possession. A man making 1,400 pounds a year. And he said, it's because people need food. I'm not going to buy silver. Piper says in response to that, not in this little article, but in another place, our problem with this, our problem when we tell people to do this, our, our problem as people is we think we need gold rather than copper. We take gold as our base expense rather than copper. And copper will do. Copper will do. When he died at 1791, he was 87 years old. The only money mentioned in his will was the coin to be found in his pocket and a coin to be found in his dresser. He gave away more than 30,000 pounds that he had earned in his life. He wrote this at the end. I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence. He would bemoan that he would still have books to his name. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. In other words, I don't need a will. The next preacher boy that needs books, tell him to come raid my library. The rest of you, there's two coins. One's in my pocket, one's in my drawer. Y'all can have that. Fight over it. Everything else... I gave it away. In other words, I will put a control on my spending myself, not because God requires it, and I will go beyond the tithe for the sake of Christ and for the sake of His kingdom. That's an example in church history of a Corinthians 8 and 9 giver. A hilarious, a generous a cheerful, a joyful giver. You can, we can say what we want about Wesley and his theologies, but he'll shame most of us in his practice.